following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Uh, greetings. Uh, good morning. Welcome uh, back to AUA uh, after a two-year absence in person. Uh, my name is Eric Rovner. Uh, I'm a urologist at, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Alan Wien uh, from uh, the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and Chris Chapel from uh, Sheffield in England. We're, we're happy to be back in person. We did this course virtually the last two years. Uh, it's much better to do it in person. I have some preliminary uh, things that I need to read. Uh, so uh, first, a uh, course utilizes ARS, audience response, to participate. You'll need to log into Poll Everywhere, and I will show you how to do that shortly. Um, you can do that through an app, uh, or you can do it uh, through texting. Um, the AUA uh, 2022 annual meeting mobile app is available and free to download. Um, uh, you'll be asked for username and password. Um, anyway, the AUA policy states that all planners, authors, and presenters must disclose prior to their presentation all relevant financial relationships. We will do that. Uh, please silence all of your cell phones um, uh, at the, uh, now, if you can. Uh, no photos, video, or audio recordings are permitted. Uh, all of the courses at the AUA are selected based on evaluation results, so please be kind to us and uh, give us uh, good uh, uh, reviews. Um, and then finally, uh, every course evaluation that you complete uh, your name will be entered into a drawing for a complimentary registration to AUA 2023 in Chicago. Uh, and you can evaluate this session by selecting Evaluate through the credit claim process. There will be a post-test. Uh, you'll see the test questions today, and then there'll be a post-test uh, that you will get following uh, the meeting. And everybody who completes the post-test survey will be entered into a random drawing for a $150 Visa gift card. So thank you. Um, all right, so this contemporary pharmacotherapy in 2022, that's our agenda. Um, we'll have some uh, pre-test questions. Uh, we'll talk about patient expectations for OAB therapy. We'll review the OAB guidelines, both the SUFU AUA guidelines and the EAU guidelines. Uh, Dr. Chapel will talk about the principles underlying OAB and drug therapy. Dr. Ween will talk about pharmacotherapy and monotherapy. Uh, then uh, Dr. Chapel will talk about combination therapy. I'll talk about nocturia, primarily not that it's an OAB uh, problem, but that patients with OAB often have nocturia. So in order to treat uh, these conditions, uh, we like to uh, give you uh, some uh, uh, principles to treat nocturia as well. And then Dr. Ween will um, talk about future directions uh, in OAB therapy, what's in the pipeline, if you will. And then hopefully we'll have some time for questions and answers. Here's our faculty, learning objectives, uh, Okay, so those are my disclosures. We'll get started. We've got a lot of slides to get through. So patient goals and expectations in pharmacotherapy. We're all familiar with the definition of OAB. It's urgency, urgency, incontinence, frequency, and nocturia. That's the goal of this, of the pharmacotherapy, is to reduce uh, those symptoms by and large. Um, 
we measure those symptoms a variety of different ways, and whether we treat OAB effectively really depends on the perspective uh, of who we're talking about. Is it the physician, the regulatory agency, the FDA, industry who want to get drugs on the market, or actually the patient? And, and the way we measure outcomes in OAB, we can do it with diaries, so-called objective measures, or, or patient-reported outcome measures, uh, questionnaires, symptom-based quality of life, a number of different ways. But using these measurements that I show you on the right, is that what the patient actually wants or expects when they're in your office getting treatment for OAB? And I borrowed this from Willett Whitmore, one of the more famous urologists uh, from Memorial Sloan Kettering. And, and this original quote was from his uh, uh, opinions on the treatment of prostate cancer, but I, I borrowed it for OAB, um, one of the more famous quotes in urology. It says, is cure necessary in those for whom it's possible, and is cure possible in those for whom it is necessary? So it originally applied to prostate cancer, but you can also apply it to OAB. Um, what really does the patient want or expect in the OAB patient? And, and with their wants and needs and desires, is it realistic, is it achievable, and as Dr. Whitmore said, is it necessary? And, and if we can't reach their goals, the patient goals, what should we do? Should we sandbag as we, as we do in golf? Should we sort of uh, under, uh, undersell, as it were, what we have to treat the patient? Um, should we, we, should, uh, should we uh, provide more aggressive treatment until the patient actually reaches their goals? Or is there some other magic here? But remember that OAB is complicated, and Dr. Chappell is going to talk about this. Pathophysiology is still not understood, despite 20 or 25 years of, and probably even longer than that, research. There's certainly myogenic components, neurological components, urothelial components, even behavioral and pelvic floor components, and probably many patients have a combination of all of these. And, and not only uh, is, is it not well understood and the natural history not well defined, um, but you've got to remember that the urinary tract is not like cheese and fine wine. So even when we fix something functionally today, like OAB, we give them a drug and they're better, the bladder doesn't get better as we age. Bladder anatomy changes, the physiology changes, detrusor overactivity increases, detrusor underactivity increases, and as our patient population ages, comorbidities increase as well. OAB is not prostate cancer. We don't have a PSA that we can measure right? Uh, the patient continues to age around their bladder. And Dr. Chappell has a great slide on that, which I'm not going to spoil. Um, so the, what are those comorbidities? You're familiar with them. Uh, obesity and depression and bladder pain syndromes and bowel conditions and certainly cardiac disease and diabetes and everything else that affects bladder function, including uh, neurological disease. So despite these complexities, what do patients expect? Do patients expect to walk out of your office with one pill and have their OAB go away? Well, I would hope not, because that would certainly be an oversell on, on your part. But what do they really expect? Do they expect to have cure or a resolution of urgency and frequency and nocturian incontinence uh, when they walk out of your office with no adverse effects and have it be inexpensive and have great quality of life? Is that what they expect or not? Right? We think our patients expect that least some of them, but I'm not sure they do. Because the realities of drug therapy, as, as Dr. Chappell and Wiener are going to talk to you about, uh, we have lots of drugs to treat OAB, but by and large the cure rate is low, somewhere around 20 or 30 percent, probably lower than that, uh, and, and modest uh, decreases in urgency and frequency and incontinence with variable adverse events. 
But is that still okay when we're treating overactive bladder? Is that still okay? Um, and and I, I, I point this study out, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine about 10 years ago, uh, but it's a good example of, of what patients think and what we think uh, with respect to our objective outcome measures. So this was the original um, Botox versus anti-muscarinic uh, uh, study, the Rosetta study, and, and it basically randomized patients to Botox and, and an anti-muscarinic, uh, and then uh, looked at uh, outcomes at six months, um, and they used the usual outcomes that we do. But I want to point out the dry rates in both arms in this study were were what we would say is pretty terrible. Um, so about uh, 10 to 15 percent in the drug arm uh, here on the, on the left. And in the Botox arm, they were twice as good, the dry rates, but they were still only around 25 percent, okay? And it's a pretty well done study, so you can't uh, uh, criticize the way they measured this. Um, however, when they actually asked the patients, are you better, okay, despite those very low dry rates, um, more than half of patients in both arms, regardless of the dry rates, were happy with the outcome. So we were missing something here in measuring dry rates and pads and urgency episodes. We're missing something because patients maybe are doing better than we think sometimes. And, and it's pretty clear in the literature that our uh, goals and outcomes, that is the physician and what the patient wants, what we think they want and what they want, are actually not particularly aligned. Patient goals uh, don't necessarily correlate with conventional measures of OAB uh, uh, outcomes, pads and that sort of thing. And patient goal achievement uh, doesn't really correlate with objective measures of treatment outcomes in trials. That means patients can get better or patients can get worse despite our so-called objective measures that we, that we use. So then what is the patient asking for? Is it are they, are they asking to get better, but they're not telling you exactly what they want to get better with? And this, this led to some work by Linda Brubaker a number of years ago, uh, uh, basically uh, looking at self-assessment goal achievement. So you actually ask the patient what they want, okay? Can't ask a prostate cancer patient what they want. They want to be cured. That's easy. But in OAB, it's not quite so easy uh, when you ask the patient uh, what they want. It's not so straightforward. Um, and, and, and Dr. Brubaker applied this uh, questionnaire, and the questionnaire is not particularly important. The concept is important uh, uh, of asking the patient what they want. And she's applied it to a number of different uh, conditions, uh, benign uh, functional conditions of the urinary tract uh, that you see here. Uh, but it turns out that your outcomes are a little bit different uh, when you actually ask the patient uh, what they want. And we actually used this uh, when uh, we, we looked at some of the original Botox uh, data in neurogenic detrusor overactivities. This is old old stuff uh, from uh, seven or eight years ago, and actually asked the patient, uh, the neurogenic patient at the start of the study, what, what do you want? Uh, what's your goal of Botox treatment? And they could choose whatever they want, and here's the, the things that they could choose. And, and ultimately, at, at the end of the study, and you looked at Botox versus placebo, what you see is this incredible, d despite whatever outcome they chose, an incredible difference between uh, drug and placebo, which as Alan and Chris are going to show you, is not always the case when we use um, uh, objective outcome measures. Uh, but in this particular study, if you actually ask the patient whether they got better, placebo separated from active arm quite well. So in summary, OAB is complex. Traditional measures of OAB outcomes may not capture the data uh, that we actually want, at least from the pers patient perspective. 
and communication is the key, and I ask you to sort of understand what your patient wants, and of course set realistic expectations, uh, but understand what your patient wants. Okay, I'm gonna move along uh, to uh, uh, a quick review of the uh, AUA, OAB, OA, I'm sorry, AUA SUFU OAB guidelines, and then Chris will talk to you about the EAU guidelines. So this was originally published in 2012 based on 151 articles. That's 10 years ago. It was updated in 2014 after 72 more articles were added and then updated again in 2019. In the original guideline, there were 22 total statements, uh, three standards. Uh, standards are the highest level of evidence. Um, and as it turns out, uh, all the other 19 statements are lesser levels of evidence, which is kind of an indictment, if you will, of, of the OAB literature. If you can't get better than three standards uh, based on a literature review for a condition that's been around for 25 years, that's sort of an indictment of our own literature. Um, the AUA, the latest update is 2019. I think the AUA commissioned another update of the OAB guidelines, which should be available in about two years. I think it was actually commissioned this week. Uh, so that process takes a couple of years, and so there'll be an update in a couple of years. Um, in the latest update, all the statements from 2015 remain unchanged. The major changes in the latest update uh, is that uh, combination therapy can be offered to those refractory to monotherapy, and Dr. Chappell will talk to you about that. Uh, a, 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 an important change uh, was emphasizing a non-hierarchical approach to the treatment of patients with OAB. That means not every patient has to fail behavioral therapy, and then patients have to fail drug therapy before they move on to third-line therapies. It's sort of a very patient-centric approach that patients can choose what they want to do uh, at the start, although many patients will choose behavioral therapy and then drug therapy and then move on to, to um, uh, more invasive therapy. Uh, you, as the clinician, can offer them uh, a non-hierarchical -hierarch uh, approach. And then there was a fourth-line therapy, which was not in the prior uh, guidelines, which are the patients with completely refractory OAB and incontinence. Uh, catheters and diversion was offered. So just a quick review. Uh, the guideline statements include diagnosis, which is unchanged, just need a history of physical and a urine analysis, uh, optional or a culture of post-void residual bladder diaries and symptom questionnaires, and then unnecessary in the initial evaluation are cystoscopy, urodynamics, and ultrasonography. That is in the initial evaluation of the uncomplicated patient. Uh, no treatment is an acceptable choice for some patients. That remains. First-line treatments remain behavioral therapies, uh, and then behavioral therapies may be combined with antimuscarinic therapy, so you can step into second-line treatments, which include uh, these agents. Uh, the beta-3s are not there, but they are included. This is from the original guideline. The beta-3s were added uh, in 2012, there were no beta-3s the, in the marketplace. There are now, but this is from the original 2012. Uh, there's no preference in the AUA guidelines to medical therapy in terms of choice of agent. Uh, that remains today, even with beta-3s. Beta-3s or antimuscarinics are options. Uh, ER formulations, extended release formulations should be preferentially offered over uh, immediate release, and then beta-3s became an option in 2015. Um, Importantly, in 2015, they did define a time frame for an adequate trial. Uh, that means you give a patient a drug for two days and it doesn't work. That's not an adequate trial. The uh, guidelines suggest that you should give a drug a trial of four to eight weeks before assessing whether it was effective or not. 
and for behavioral therapy, eight to 12 weeks, which actually makes sense, because if you, if you uh, study muscle physiology, physical therapists, uh, in order to get a full response uh, from a muscle group, you need to wait three or four months of steady uh, activity before you can declare it working or not working. Third-line therapies include sacral neuromodulation, which continues as a recommendation, PTNS continues as a recommendation, and Botox is a standard uh, for the carefully selected and thoroughly counseled patient willing to perform self-catheterization. And then fourth-line therapies uh, was added to the latest iteration of the OAB guidelines, and that includes uh, augmentation cystoplasty, urinary diversions, catheters, and, and that sort of thing. That's the very complicated algorithm for the AUA uh, overactive bladder guidelines, but it's not quite that complicated, and uh, we look forward to the next set of the AUA uh, guidelines. So I'm going to ask Chris to come up and talk about the EAU guidelines uh, for overactive bladder. Thank you. Thanks, Eric, and thank you very much indeed for inviting me to join the faculty. Again, it's a great honor and pleasure to be here. So I think there's a great deal of overlap between the EAU and AUA guidelines, as you might expect, and these are my conflicts of interest. Guidelines, of course, are based on evidence. And the assessment of the evidence tells you what you know, what you don't know, and what you need to know. At the AU, we've always emphasized the importance of assessing the literature, and these guidelines are updated every year. The principle of these guidelines is that you're looking at evidence as A, B, or C, or whatever you want to call it, but more recently we've brought in the grade technology, which means it's either good or poor evidence. And so that's what you'll see in these different tables. And of course, uh, we, we've got a time issue. Could you just turn the timer off, please? It's just flashing and it's distracting. Thank you very much. If you look at the evidence, what you're looking at is obviously this, the classical things of history, physical examination, assessment of patients with the voiding diary, basic urodynamic parameters, and of course the use of formal urodynamics and other treatments. If you look at symptom scoring, of course it is important, but bear in mind, as I'll emphasize later, that the bladder is an unreliable witness. And if you're just using symptom scoring, you can't make a diagnosis by itself. So overactive bladder, BPH, whatever you like, if it makes you feel comfortable to make a diagnosis based on that, fine. But every, a word means what you mean it to mean, no more, no less. And at the end of the day, you're dealing with patients. So it is important just to bear that in mind. A bladder diary is essential in both men and women. How many urologists treat a patient, a male patient, with BPH without a bladder diary? I hope I'll show you that I think that's not adequate practice. Obviously, if you then move on, we've got to think about asking the patient about the, um, how the voiding diary relates to what they're doing. You've got to look at the evidence then and look at what you need to do next. Urinalysis would all agree as urologists is basic assessment. Um, Post-voiding residuals, of course, essential in both men and women. The question is to whether you look at voiding efficiency, in other words, how you relate the residual to the functional capacity, is, of course, poor, poorly researched still, but it is so important. And you can't measure the functional capacity of the bladder without a bladder diary, because, of course, the functional capacity is the volume voided plus the residual. So important. If you've got a residual which is more than 40%, then that becomes significant. In all <coughs> pharmacotherapy trials in men, 
150 mils has been taken as a cutoff point, avoiding efficiency of 40%. Beyond that, nobody's wanted to use anti-muscarics and so on. It's so important also to think, therefore, functional capacity. Is it normal? Is it reduced? Or is there reduced anatomical capacity? If the patient, for instance, has been on ketamine, if the patient has an infected disorder or something else which is affecting the capacity of the bladder. Moving on then, of course, for women, pad testing, useful, but as to whether you get into the iterations on that, poor evidence for that. Of course, imaging of the upper tracts only if clinically necessary, and if one's then moving on to urodynamics, a large topic. But the bottom line, I think it's fair to say, in 2022, is a target approach to the use of urodynamics. Not using it as a panacea, but bear in mind, urodynamics is the history, the frequency volume chart, the residual, and pressure flow studies. It's not just pressure flow studies. And it's like anything, it's like PSA testing. If you throw it at everybody in the population, you have a poor pickup. So the same with urodynamics, it's targeted. If you're moving on to disease um, management, of course, you'll always want to try conservative measures first, reduce caffeine, reduce fluid intake if that's a big problem. And of course, you can't tell that without a bladder diary. You need to have a bladder diary to show if a patient's got, as we'll hear later, talking about nocturnal polyuria. How do you assess if they're producing more than a third of 24-hour production unless you measure it? Can you guess it? Can you assess it? Of course you can't. And so it's so important to bear that in mind. And of course, it, weight loss, other things which are obviously difficult to get patients to do are so important. And tibial nerve stimulation is put in here as an intermediate between level two treatment, which is drug therapy, and sacral neuromodulation or Botox, which are level three. Because if you look at the data, it's a little bit in the middle. In terms of disease management, you need to think of which are the most bothersome symptoms, and if particularly with mixed incontinence, treat the most bothersome symptom first. So it may be appropriate to use pharmacotherapy as well as physiotherapy before, of course, considering surgery, and then urodynamics can be helpful in my own personal view. Antimuscarinics, of course, there's a myriad of them out there, and we've tried at the guidelines to rank them. And using a technology called multi-criteria decision analysis, which basically gets clinicians and patients to assess the importance of symptoms, you can rank the various antimuscarinics. Now, the bottom line from this rather busy slide is that the beta-3 agonist isn't as effective across the board in the randomized controlled trials against placebo as an antimuscarinic. Fesoteridine looks better than most, but that's the only trial against placebo which has used dose titration. So as we were hearing earlier, it's very important to think about dose titration to efficacy versus side effects, and that's emphasized by this slide. So if you're coming on to the antimuscarinics, there's clear evidence that they're effective. There's been a lot of discussion about the elderly, and clearly you need to think of an elderly person, and bear in mind an anticholinergic can add to the problems that they have with mentation. But of course, think of the other therapy that they may be on, because there are many other drugs which we don't appreciate as urologists have antimuscarinic properties. And if you're adding to that burden, it may affect their cerebral function. Beta-3 agonist in our guidelines is ranked as equivalent as third-line therapy to an antimuscarinic, but certainly it's probably not quite as effective across the board in the trials, as I've mentioned already. Alternatives to pharmacotherapy, just to emphasize that the, as I said earlier, that uh, if you're looking at 
um, tibial nerve stimulation, that's an intermediate position. Of course, if you're talking about incontinence, stress incontinence, I know in North America, duloxetine isn't licensed, but it is in some places in Europe. Uh, and this can be effective, but it has a lot of side effects, and we rarely use it, to be honest, because the side effects actually aren't tolerable. If you're looking at estrogen, does not affect urgency or incontinence, particularly, or stress incontinence. There is some evidence it improves urgency, but it's in patients with vagin vaginitis or uh, atrophic vaginitis. It's quite useful for patients with recurrent urinary infections in that group. And, of course, by, by inference, it will improve the urgency symptoms in these patients to, to a great extent if they've got severe atrophic vaginitis. And, of course, therefore, I routinely use in postmenopausal women uh, estrogen uh, vaginally. Drugs for mixed incontinence, again, duloxetine, as I've mentioned, but, again, limited benefit, antimuscarinics. Of course, we'll hear more about desmopressin later in, in the program. Uh, and, of course, one needs to consider carefully assessing the sodium level, particularly over the age of 60, uh, and particularly in women versus men, because women seem to be more sensitive in terms of the excretion of desmopressin-related agents. Uh, and certainly, uh, you have to measure serum sodium level before starting therapy in these patients, optimally a week to 10 days after, and then probably after a, a month. And if they're stable, then you just regular monitoring. And uh, on a botulinum toxin A, certainly very effective, as you all appreciate. Uh, you need to counsel the patients. The risk of retention, in fact, is pretty low under the age of 60 from recent data that you'll be seeing coming out uh, looking at the pivotal studies. Uh, and it's mostly in, in male patients over the age of 70 that you may have a concern. But obviously, you need to warn the patients about the possible need for intermittent self-catheterization. Of course, sacral neuromodulation, very effective, an alternative uh, third-line therapy. And of course, if you fail with all of these aspects, then think of other options. It is clear evidence that vaginal laser therapy does not help in our guidelines, so do not use that unless you want an expensive placebo. And certainly, augmentation cystoplasty can be used, but of course, it's a tried and trusted um, treatment, but of course, the side effect profile we're all familiar with. But to be end, at the end of the day, in a neurological patient where you're worried about renal function with a very nasty bladder, then it's not going to wear off in the same way as Botox. And then consider this as still an option. Like everything, we don't want to throw out everything we knew before just we've got the latest kid on the block. So it's a balance, isn't it? And so certainly bear this in mind. But again, with any surgical technique, the evidence base is poor because nobody's funding trials. And as surgeons, we carry out studies, but often not to the required quality that you see for agencies like the FDA. So those are the EAU guidelines. Considerable overlap with AUA, of course. At the end of the day, there's very little new occurring in this area, but I hope that's giving you an insight. Moving on to the next talk, I'm just going to really emphasize personal views on what we're actually treating. Now, at the end of the day, we're all talking about lonely tract symptoms. These are my conflicts. But the bladder is an unreliable witness. The guy who trained me, uh, always used to emphasize this, and here's the man who introduced urodynamics in 1969, pressure flow urodynamics, <coughs> because the symptoms are not disease-specific, and I hope I will actually convince you of that. 
patients report them in different ways. We know that, don't we? I don't know whether you fi find the same problem I do with somebody who says, sometimes I do this and sometimes I don't. <coughs> it's very difficult to get history sometimes, if you forgive me using the term sometimes. <laughs> and again, as clinicians, we all come with our own baggage and knowledge and understanding and interpretation. This is the reason why the term LUTS was introduced initially for men with lonely tract symptoms, but it, of course it's applied to both men and women, and it's storage voiding and post-mictrician symptoms. And I was rather um, interested by the abstract session I was involved in yesterday to hear how people are still trying to interrogate symptoms and draw conclusions, meaningful conclusions from them, which as you can see will be difficult because as shown on the next slide, when looking at storage symptoms, this is old data looking at both men and women. Can you see any difference between the spread of the symptoms in men or women? And women certainly don't have prostates, do they? And bear in mind, most men come to us with male LUTs, prostatism, because of urgency, frequency, nocturia, don't they? And again, at the poster session yesterday, there was a huge emphasis on flow rates and finding a reason to operate on somebody. At the end of the day, think of the global patient. At the end of the day, we're talking about this, these symptom complexes. Overactive bladder is a non-specific symptom complex as distinct from Dutroux's overactivity. It can affect men or women, and it can be not just due to Dutroux's overactivity, but to other conditions which affect bladder function. CIS, infective diseases in the bladder, ketamine, cerebral disorders, all sorts of things. At the end of the day, if one talking about the overactive bladder symptom complex, it's manifest by definition by urgency, a compelling desire to pass urine which is difficult to defer for fear of leakage. It's a definition. Again, it's not been properly quantified. That's why in North America use the term urge incontinence, which is a misnomer, because urge is a normal symptom. Have a, nevertheless, it's an FDA regulation. At the end of the day, we're talking about urgency. If you get urgency, when you've got to go, you've got to go, so you go more often. If you go more often, you pass less each time. And of course, it can affect you at night, because it's nocturia. And if you're female, a third of women because of the weak outlet, will suffer from urgency incontinence. If you look at overactive bladder, in men it's actually more common by the age of 75 than in women. And this is related to the high prevalence of Dutroux's overactivity, which is related to the, the, this age group. Now people have said, oh, that's because they're obstructed. And so they get trabeculated bladders, and they have Dutroux's overactivity. And that set off a whole lot of research with Alison Brading many years ago with obstructed pig models and it's been rabbits, rats, guinea pigs and lots of small furry mammals having obstruction. But at the end of the day, how much of your time is spent voiding? Less than 1%. What causes trabeculation, that's why you see it more pronounced in neuropaths, is the isometric contractions with the bladder doing this, the overactivity, not the obstruction. Another misnomer. Okay. So let's think a bit further. So what is urgency? It's a sensation. Do you perceive a sensation in the brain or in the bladder? A question. Of course, you also have other causes. You've got bladder pain syndrome, so-called interstitial cystitis. And of course, there you get urgency for, because of pain. But it's got to be defined as such. It's not defined by the ICS or by anybody else, but you get an overlap. They're all sensory symptoms. And of course, don't forget in men, there is a relationship between erectile function and 
lonely tract symptoms, and of course age. And that's of course cerebral factors as well. I'm afraid as an aging male, I'm starting to get more overactive bladder symptoms, and that's because I'm probably losing, losing my uh, neurons, you know, my brain function, or whatever else. I don't know. Something's happening. At the end of the day, if you're talking about so-called BPH, this goes back to Tyrehalt from Denmark many years ago, and this is modified, of course. You're talking, if you look at 100 men, you're talking about a proportion who have enlargement. Half of those may have obstruction. A lot of those won't have either because, of course, they have overactive bladder symptoms. And, of course, don't forget around every prostate <coughs> and bladder, there's the rest of the patient with renal dysfunction, cerebral dysfunction, cardiac dysfunction, pituitary diabetes, etc. And, of course, if you apply the same algorithm to women, you have, of course, the added component of weakness of the bladder outlet, which has to be borne in mind. And so it's very important just to bear all these factors in mind, the same principle about the other organs. So the strength of any uh, diagnosis based on symptoms, it helps patients to identify what's going on. It helps us. But as long as it doesn't mislead us by dragging us down the wrong track, if you like, and getting us to treat the wrong thing. At the end of the day, do we have two types of afferent pathology? One due to pain, one due to involuntary detrusor contractions. And of course, urodynamics. The problem with urodynamics, pressure flow urodynamics, is across the board when we've done surveys in my country, certainly we find 30% of the pressure flow urodynamics isn't worth the paper it's printed on because of errors. At the end of the day, we all know the principle, and you can use video urodynamics if you wish, particularly in women where you're looking at stress incontinence. Remember, video is nothing to do with video ma machines, but from the Latin video videre to see, because you're using contrast, you can see the anatomy. And again, we all know what detrusor overactivity looks like, and we recognize that there's no specific pressure rise. It's a pattern nowadays. Many years ago, 15 centimeters of water was suggested, and that's because the filtration pressure of the kidneys is around um, 16 centimeters of water, and that was thought when they set up the urodynamic, um, if you like, the urodynamic process that they were trying to avoid pressure on the kidneys. So really, what are we talking about from a functional standpoint? What are we measuring with urodynamic assessment? And again, you've got on one hand the symptom complex, on the other a urodynamic diagnosis, which is non-physiological, it's provocation systometry, and that's why you use a lower fill rate in neuropaths, because you're likely to provoke more of a reaction, down to 20 mils per minute rather than 50 to 100. And at the end of the day, we have neurogenic or idiopathic. And this is just some data from Bristol. You can see men and women. And in women, you can see if they've got, um, <coughs> if they're dry, no incontinence, it's 44% have to truce overactivity. And only 60% of wet, wet women with urgency incontinence actually have to truce overactivity. In men, of course, much higher rates because of the stronger outlet, 60 and 90% respectively. So what are we talking about? What definition? Is it a symptomatic patient? Of course it is. That's what we're treating. Urodynamics, conventional urodynamics is useful. In that, for instance, in the male, diagnosing underactivity, demonstrating severe overactivity, etc. And in the female, of course, looking at the bladder outlet and its relationship uh, to the bladder function. Ambulatory urodynamics is a research tool. It's not standardized. I won't discuss it further. So coming on to the neurophysiology.
of course we're relying upon sensory nerves, there's been a lot of emphasis on the detrusor muscle, which is, of course, cholinergically innovated. So what are we actually talking about? Because I've already mentioned that overactive bladder and detrusor overactivity are two aspects of the problem, and they're not synonymous. Many years ago, a number of us got together and raised the point we're actually treating sensory problems. I've already emphasized urgency is a sensation. And we do know that there's overlap, of course, in the innovation between the rectum and the bladder. The same innovation. You see that in Cordoquinus syndrome, don't you? Where you damage the pelvic nerves. So at the end of the day, something, and there's animal models, if you put something no no noxious in the rectum, you cause bladder overactivity. And if you do something to the bladder, you get bowel dysfunction as well. No surprise. And that's been shown clinically from colleagues from Belgium. Micromotions, a number of years ago, Bo Coulsett and others have looked at this, but to be honest, these are agonal preparations with a non-innovated uh, and non-vascularized organ, and it's really not felt to be an issue any longer. What we're talking about is the neuroanatomy of the urinary tract. The urethelium has a metabolic rate four times that of the trusor muscle, and it is probably that and the subutherial plexus are the drivers for disorders. Let's face it. Interstitial cystitis, bladder pain syndrome, we think is loss of the gag layer on the mucosa, which leads to dysfunction of the mucosa, which leads to pain, which leads to symptoms of frequency. Nothing to do with the detrusor muscle. At the end of the day, I don't, not for one moment saying detrusor muscle isn't important, because if you don't have a functioning detrusor, you're going to have an underactive bladder, aren't you? So you have to have the detrusor muscle. But is the target the detrusor muscle? If you go to many meetings, people are talking about the detrusor, anti-muscarinx on the detrusor, talking about beta-3, causing relaxation of the bladder. Everything's about the bladder, muscle. Are we talking about that? Of course, you have non-neural release of neurotransmitters when you stretch the urethelium. You've got a feedback mechanism, which is actually acting on, oopsie daisy, acting on the submucosal plexus. The submucosal plexus is the key center, if you like, where the sensory nerves are. And you've got uh, this interaction at that level. You've also got, uh, of course, lots of sensory nerves, but you have these interstitial cells, rather like the interstitial cells of Carl in the gut, which have now been clearly shown to be cholinergically innovated. So what the anticholinergics are doing is not only affecting the detrusor, and Botox and the antimuscarinics do inhibit detrusor contraction. No question, give enough, they'll go into retention but they're also affecting cholinergic receptors at the urethelium and in the interstitial, on the interstitial cells in the suburethelial plexus. And you can clearly demonstrate these. And it's, uh, Karen McCluskey in Belfast is the key opinion leader on this and has shown this very clearly. So the controversy, are we limited to focus on the periphery and the, of course, the local neuroanatomy? Should we be considering other aspects? Again, another example is the use of agents which affect the afferent system. And many years ago, capsaicin was used, and then ricinifratoxin. And these actually just act on sensory nerves, causing explosive degranulation. If you put capsaicin in the human bladder, you can go into retention for six months, not touching the motor side. And of course, if you then look further from that, looking at the bladder, You've got sensory nerves, impulses going up through periaqua ductal gray matter to the brain, to the upper higher centers. And that was shown many years ago. 
and these nerves are acting all the time that you're sitting there until it reaches consciousness that you need to go to the bathroom. And that's causing an inhibition of the pontine micturition center. When you release that inhibition, permission to void is given and you empty the bladder. And of course you can look at this, but of course functional MRI is very difficult. Lying in an MRI scanner, flat on your back, trying to pass urine is hardly physiological. But again, you can look at the function, although it's still at a preventive level. And of course, you can see here Derek Griffiths, who of course was a physicist behind all the theory with urodynamics, don't forget that. He's a guy who defined the whole principle of urodynamics, uh, and the Griffiths normogram is an example of that. So, just briefly to finish, what are, we, what are the targets? Central nervous system, we'll hear more about later. Detrusor muscle, I've, I hope I've convinced you we're trying not to affect that because of inhibition avoiding. Urothelium, and of course the interstitial cells. The CNS, too many side effects like duloxetine. So of course, coming on to the mucosa, people have looked at various targets, but at the end of the day, botulinum toxin seems to be the only one that's really reached clinical practice. And again, what you're talking about in terms of urgency is to try and influence this feedback with neurotransmitters like nitric oxide, best relaxant in, the, in physiology, and again, clot retention is due to, to actually inhibition of nitric oxide, which is why as surgeons we see clot retention. Patients aren't in retention, but there's clot in the bladder with severe frequency, urgency, and pain. And of course, if you then move on to myocytes, uh, of course, we've looked at different ways of uh, trying to target that. More recently, the development program looking at treatment of underactive bladder with agents working on the myocytes has failed. It didn't reach its primary outcome, and you'll see the manuscript coming out on that soon. One of the problems is that there's not a single drug which has come out of any of the animal studies. Remember, animals have a non-cholinergic, non whatever, adrenergic innovation, different to the human. A lot of neuropeptides involved. So if you want to base a hypothesis on an animal study, feel free. But bear in mind that the evidence is that very few of the studies which have shown efficacy have ever gone anywhere clinically. In fact, I can't think of any where there's not other supportive evidence. So. At the end of the day, sacral neuromodulation works, doesn't it? It doesn't go anywhere near the detrusor muscle. Neither does posterior tibial nerve stimulation. So I hope I've convinced you to think outside the box, the traditional theory of just thinking of the detrusor muscle as a target, and bear in mind that what we're talking about. Just, I want to say this, that this is a, uh, basically this, year, this guy is a guy who I think has introduced sacral neuromodulation, and he's also introduced botulinum toxin. Rick Schmidt. I think everybody's really recognized him for that, properly outside uh, the fold of people who work in this area. Schmidt and Tonago, sacral remodulation. He, when he was at Denver, he took out the patent for botulinum toxin. At the end of the day, botulinum toxin affects all of, the sen all of the nerves, both sensory and motor in the urinary tract. And again, you're producing an inhibition of release of neurotransmitters, sensory neurotransmitters. If you look at the original work, at the phase two studies. Eric Rovner showed, for instance, that urodynamics didn't predict outcome with botulinum toxin. In other words, the truth overactivity. When uh, there was a study that Domikowski and myself reported the phase two data with botulinum toxin that showed 
Beyond 200 units with Botox for idiopathic overactive bladder, you didn't get any improvement in the storage symptoms. You just got more retention. So at the end of the day, we're looking at a target where Tetrusa inhibition is a bystander effect with antimuscarinics and Botox. You're trying to target the sensory dysfunction. And this is an, some animal work. Again, I've just said animal work doesn't help, but this was looking at specific monitoring of nerve impulses from our group, showing that you could show the effect of Botox in a live preparation, showing as it dropped off quite rapidly. And of course, if you come on to the beta-3, this was serendipitous, rather like Viagra. It was an anti-obesity drug being developed, in fact, uh, for obesity and diabetes, and it failed. But it was recognized from Japan that it may have a link, based on these uh, gene studies, to actually overactive bladder. At the end of the day, uh, mirabegron acts on sensory nerves. It doesn't seem to target the tetrusa muscle. None of the trials have shown increased residuals, have they? At the end of the day, that's what you're talking about. So what I would suggest to you is think outside the box. Think about how these things are actually working. Bear in mind that we're talking about a sensory dysfunction affecting the motor system, because we all have a brain involved, and that's why with dementia, frontal strokes and so on, brain tumors, you get severe bladder problems. In fact, students before exams get frequency. Very common. So bear that in mind. There are no biomarkers. There's been a lot of literature about biomarkers, bladder wall thickness, various peptides and so on, NGF. There's no evidence that they have any clear re relation to the stage. And there's an awful lot of literature which you see positive outcomes. And this is a slide from Alan Wynn, the bottom there you can see on the right, showing what we know and what we don't know. And what we don't know is far more than what we actually know. So we're really just like learner drivers, aren't we? So I'm afraid, I hope I haven't left you feeling like this. And certainly moving on now to Alan, who's going to, as one of the pioneers in this area, is going to actually give us more insights. Alan. So good morning and welcome. So my job is to talk about oral monotherapy for overactive bladder, my conflict of interest. So how would you propose to treat overactive bladder or detrusor overactivity? Well, these are the principles. Decrease activation on the motor or sensory or both sides of the micturition cycle. Decrease residual urine and thereby increase the functional bladder capacity. Decrease the volume of urine delivered to the bladder and if there are any associated factors, which we often ignore, treat those, like bladder outlet obstruction, like significant prolapse, like predominant stress urinary incontinence. So this is the ideal drug that I think everyone would be able to recite these principles if I ask you about them. And the key really is uroselectivity. You want a drug that's going to act just on the bladder because that will give you a minimal number of adverse events. So the overactive bladder treatment goals then are symptom relief, and the ultimate goal is symptom reduction. But as Eric told you, a realistic goal is symptom improvement and not cure. So the patient expectations have to be realistic, and you have to explain these very clearly at the outset, because a minority of patients will achieve a cure meaning no urgency, incontinence, no urgency, et cetera, perfectly normal micturition fashion. 
And when you look at studies, this is basically what you look at. Urgency incontinence episodes are the easiest to measure because they're the most objective. Urgency is somewhat subjective, as Chris stated. Frequency is pretty easy to measure. Volume voided is probably the best measure, but as you'll see, it's actually a mi minor effect. Nocturia, most of the drugs in our category for overactive bladder don't affect nocturia. Quality of life basically always goes up. So what about behavioral therapy? These are all the things that are included in behavioral therapy. And it works, and it has to be used in every single patient as an adjunct to whatever type of drug therapy you're going to use. Um, it works, it requires somebody in your practice who's familiar with it, who's willing to take the time and effort to teach the patients what behavioral therapy means and to see them periodically to make sure that it's really utilized. Now, these are two studies that showed that drug plus behavioral therapy is more effective than either alone. One in the year 2000, it took actually 20 years to do the similar project in men, but it's the same. The two work together than either one by itself. Now, the EAU guidelines, I think they're great. I would encourage you all to look at them. I mean, they're revised every year or two. This year, the ones on lower urinary tract dysfunction, both for men, for women, and neurogenic were all revised. And they spell things out pretty clearly. They, what I call, take no prisoners. If they, think if they think something, they put it on paper without any fear of embarrassing anyone. So these are from the guidelines, the new statements this year. Reduction of caffeine may reduce symptoms of frequency. Chris already told you that. Reduction of fluid intake can reduce symptoms, but not urgency or not urinary incontinence. Obesity is a risk factor in women for urinary incontinence. There's weak evidence for smoking cessation. Bladder training is effective for improvement of urgency urinary incontinence in women. And pelvic floor training may improve frequency and urgency and incontinence in women. Okay, let's do the antimuscarinics. As Chris said, in usual doses, they do not affect emptying in patients with overactive bladder. In higher doses, they can, reduce, they can produce retention, which means that if you use them in lower dose, as Chris said, it's very likely that they're not acting on the detrusor muscle directly. And in an overactive bladder in whom retention is not a goal, they act during filling and storage and not during emptying. I like this diagram by Carl Eric Anderson that shows with lower doses, Basically, you affect filling and storage, and it's only when you get into the upper doses that you get an effect on both afferent activity and motor activity, and you can cause urinary retention. And this was just a summary statement from one of the articles that really basically looked into this that said, hey, the available data don't support the conclusion that antimuscarinic drugs exert their therapeutic action by inhibiting bladder contraction. They work on things related to afferent impulses sensation. The, this is from the book Incontinence put out by the International Consultation on Incontinence. Usually it comes out every three years. This year we're two years late, but the list is the same in the upcoming volume as it was in 2017. 
and basically these are the list of approved, that is 1A randomized controlled trials. They work, they're effective for overactive bladder, for all the drugs with anti-muscarinic properties. Now the AUA guidelines, Eric has already gone through. These haven't actually been revised since 2019. Behavioral therapy, um, first line, but now first line is really combining it with drug treatment. That's what I do. I don't use either one by themselves. Extended release, preferred over immediate release. You can use transdermal oxybutynin. You can modify the dose of an antimuscarinic or you can add a beta-3. You'll actually get a bigger bang for your buck if you add a beta-3 to it. The usual information about glaucoma, constipation, um, et cetera, caution. If, you, if the patient is taking other medications with anticholinergic properties because of the risk of cognitive impairment. Okay, so can we compare results from one drug to another? Well, Bill, be really careful when you're doing this. Make sure, first of all, that you're comparing medians to medians and means to means. Don't compare means to medians because they're different. Median changes for overactive bladder drugs are generally higher than means. Don't mix the two. I've always preferred using percents of drug placebo ratio to level the playing field, and they come out about the same whether you're using the means for one drug or the medians. So these are the reported efficacy of anti-muscarinics using median results, urgency urinary incontinence reduction, versus placebo, urgency reduction, frequency reduction, and quality of life always goes up. Now let me just point out one thing, okay? So let's take the urgency urinary incontinence reductions, low estimate 55 and 35. Does that mean that the drug is reducing 55% of the episodes? No, it doesn't. The drug is reducing the difference between the drug and placebo. All right, so the drug using those two numbers is actually 20% effective, right? The placebo contributes the other 35%. These are the adverse events of anti-muscarinics. I think everyone's familiar with these. There was a big thing about cardiac issues, although Mike Chancellor told me that he actually took all the anti-muscarinic drugs and most of them made his heart rate go up five beats per minute at night from 50 to 55. I've never taken them, so I can't tell you about that. There's a big issue about whether the anti-muscarinics cause cognitive dysfunction or not. Most of the articles are in favor of that. Here are two of them right here. Now, there's a risk for cognitive dysfunction. There's a risk for Alzheimer's disease. There's a risk for dementia in most of these large studies. And in 2016, when this article came out in JAMA Neurology, it was one of the highest cited articles in the country for two years, and everyone thought that the game was really over, but that seems to have dissipated, and we still use anti-muscarinic drugs uh, more so than beta-3 agonists. So most articles support this, not all of them. The articles cite the total anticholinergic load or anti-muscarinic load. They don't separate the drugs. In other words, there's no single drug or there's no single study that's done with anything but oxybutynin and immediate release. There's no single study done with darifenacin or trospium, each of, have, each of which have reasons not to 
be concentrated in brain tissue as much as the others. So the efficacy of anti-muscarinics, as I told you, um, I like to take the percent improvement and make a ratio of a drug to placebo. And to see how different they are, let's just take the last two that were approved, no preference, solifenacin and fesoteridine. These are data from the numbers that were submitted to the Food and Drug Administration for approval of the drug. So this is basically what I've done. And I've circled all the relevant stuff so you don't have to look at all the numbers on the slide. So this is the efficacy for incontinence episodes. The two columns or three columns just indicate basically different studies. So there's solifenacin 5, solifenacin 10, and fesoteridine 8 <coughs> versus placebo. So let's just take fesoteridine 4. Uh, first column, 54% and 32%. What's the effect of the drug? Well, the effect of the drug is really 22%, right? because the other portion is contributed by the placebo effect. So that's okay. I mean, I personally don't care whether my patient gets better because of a placebo effect or because of a drug effect, but just so you understand, those are the numbers. So the recommendations from the EAU guidelines offer anti-muscarinic drugs to adults with urgency incontinence who have failed conservative treatment, extended release drugs. If the treatment's ineffective, either raise the dose, add another anti-muscarinic or a beta-3 agonist, and look at the patients frequently. From the EAU again, in red, no anticholinergic drug is superior to another for cure or improvement of overactive bladder slash urinary incontinence. They don't mind saying that. Um, higher doses, basically, higher side effects, once daily, probably associated with lower rates of adverse events. Most patients will stop them in the first three months because of a combination of lack of efficacy and side effects. Uh, again, looking at solifenacin and fesoteridine versus placebo, these are the drug placebo ratios. So, you know, they come out pretty good. This is, an, this is basically, this means that soli-5 in this study worked 1.8 times as well as placebo in reducing urgency urinary incontinence episodes. But as you can see, the numbers are really not that different, which is why I think the EAU made that statement. So what about the placebo effect? Well, these are numbers taken from the literature. Symptomatic improvement or cure. This is a summation, 41% placebo, 56% active. So what does that mean? Well, it means that basically the drug is contributing an extra 15% to the placebo. And here's the, urge, the urgency incontinence episodes per day, 36.7% for placebo, frequency per day, voided volume is the smallest placebo effect, and that's why it's a very good indicator of what's working. Here's another series, again, you can look at the placebo and the drugs and say, hey, I'm happy with the drug effects. I don't care whether it's placebo or not. But just so you know, the drug, it, let's say, look at duloxetine, 53% drug, 33% placebo. The drug effect's really 22%, or I'm sorry, 20%. Is the placebo effect sustained? Everybody says, well, no, it's not. Well, that's not true. Consider this. Every drug does a continuation study, okay? Now, admittedly, that's a completer study. They ask you, they say, well, you want to continue this drug. We're going to continue it in a bunch of people. Okay. 
So it's a selected population. However, in that selected population, the placebo effect, if it's not sustained, should wear off after a year. It doesn't because the efficacy is the same. The drug all of a sudden didn't become magically more effective. The placebo effect just stuck around and so did the drug effect in that selected population. The elderly, again from the EAU, anti-muscarinic drugs are effective in elderly women. Interesting that they don't mention men. Oxybutynin may worsen cognitive function in elderly women. Notice they don't really mention men. Here's an interesting statement. Dairy fenison, solifenison, fesoteridine, and trospium have, not, have been shown not to cause cognitive dysfunction in elderly women in short-term studies. The studies that I showed you were more longer-term studies. Antimuscarinics in men, no question that these can improve filling and storage symptoms, especially when combined with an alpha blocker. So these all get pretty high recommendations. In neurogenics, uh, the long-term efficacy and safety of antimuscarinics has been very well documented, and they're generally first-line medical treatment for neurogenic detrusor overactivity, NDO. The problem is that antimuscarinic therapy, most patients don't stay on it for very long, no matter what the medication is. So this is just one of innumerable of innumerable graphs in the literature, basically, and you say, well, why is this? Well, as I said, lack of true efficacy and side effects. What about the beta-3 agonists? Well, look at the second one. Afferent inhibition has been suggested as well, as well as direct action on the detrusor muscle, which is basically the first bullet point. And recently, it's been suggested that there's activation of prejunctional receptors that downregulate the release of acetylcholine from cholinergic nerve terminals that are on the detrusor muscle. So the first one was Mirabegron, rated 1A by the International Consultation on Incontinence for LUTs, over overactive bladder, and detrusor overactivity. As Chris said, if you really look at the numbers, not as efficacious as the anti-muscarinics. Here's mirabegron 50, mirabegron 25 and 50 in placebo, and you can see the numbers are not really as impressive as the anti-muscarinics. And in fact, if you look at the difference between drug and placebo, you'll see, hey, you know, it's really not that great. But do you really care as long as you get the total number reflected by the drug? So these are the percent reduction in incontinence episodes for some of the anti-muscarinics and Mirabegron, both in 25 and 50 milligrams, and you'll see there's really not much difference between 50 and 25. Um, and solifenison, et cetera, you'll see that the numbers are slightly higher for the anti-muscarinics. Decrease in incontinence episodes, this is drug-placebo ratio, and you'll see the drug-placebo ratios are somewhat higher for the anti-muscarinics on the average than they are for Mirabegron, the beta-3 agonist. The persistence for Mirabegron, well, okay, on this graph, it's higher. The bigger you make the graph, the bigger the difference. But, you know, it, it's still, at the end of the year, only between 30 and 40 percent. So that's better, but still, it's not exactly what you'd like to see. The adverse events of Mirabegron, I circled 11.3 for the low dose for what was defined as hypertension. Isn't it odd that the high dose didn't do that? 
but that's why Mira Begron got the ding in the PI for hypertension, is because of the 11.3 versus the 7.6 seen with placebo with the low dose. Is Mirabagron safe in the elderly? The qualitative answer is yes, there are the references. In the elderly, it's been shown to be efficacious. Again, it specifies elderly women. Um, and also in the elderly, the cognitive impact of drugs with anticholinergic effects is cumulative and increases with length of exposure. So my personal preference for a drug to inhibit overactive bladder symptomatology in the elderly really is a beta-3 and not an anti-muscarinic. And again, the same statement about some of the anti-muscarinics. Uh, in the EAU guidelines, um, Mirabegron and Vibegron are superior to placebo in terms of improvement of urgency urinary incontinence. The adverse events of Mirabegron and Vibegron are similar to placebo. Notice they don't mention hypertension. Patients inadequately treated with a low-dose anti-muscarinic can benefit from the addition of at least Mirabegron. I'm sure the same thing will be true with Vibegron. This is the second drug recently introduced, Vibegron, another selective beta-3 agonist. This was the study that was published in the Journal of Urology, basically uh, looking at changes in, incontinence, in micturitions per day and frequency and urgency incontinence episodes compared to tolteridine, which is in the green, and you can see that basically um, it produces a larger decrease in the dotted line as placebo. This is from Dave Staskin's articles, and again, with no matter what endpoint you look at, you can see that, yeah, it's better than placebo, and in this study, it was better than tolteridine. If you look at the side effects, you can see as far as hypertension is concerned, there's no difference in placebo. I'm not sure what the difference between blood pressure increased and hypertension really is. The, the definitions of hypertension vary in the two studies between Mirabegron and Vibegron. Uh, there were no numbers in that article. These are the numbers from the original presentation at the AUA. Uh, basically, if you look at daily urgency incontinence episodes for Vibegron, one dose, uh, here's the baseline mean, here's the percent reduction. Uh, placebo, Vibegron, tolteridine, better than tolteridine and placebo. Daily urgency episodes um, at the bottom with the drug-placebo ratio. And you can see the drug-placebo ratio is, again, it's less than the anti-muscarinics, but with more baggage. These are the mean changes with Vibegron. Uh, micturitions, urgency urinary incontinence episodes, and urgency, um, along with the drug-placebo ratios. The decrease in incontinence episodes compared to two of the anti-muscarinics, and as you can see, slightly less, but still, that's okay, it works. Uh, Vibegron basically has been published to show that extension study in patients who want to stay on it, it lasts. In the elderly, it's effective. Um, basically, and it increases quality of life. Vibegron, no difference in results by age. You don't have to adjust the dosage for renal impairment or moderate liver imp impairment. There are no drug-drug interactions except for increasing digoxin concentrations. There's no induction or inhibitory effect on cytochrome P450. This is an article by Chris that was very gutsy to publish because it shows what happens in real life 
with these drugs, and as you can see, none of the results are as good as what are published in the literature. Uh, the placebo, mirabegron 25, mirabegron 50, solifenacin 5, and basically extended release tolteridine. And if you look at these, you sort of get the idea that in practice, the results are not what you see in the literature. And in fact, in practice, the only side effect that seems to be reported uh, that's out of proportion with one set of drugs than another is basically dry mouth with the anti-muscarinics. Beta agonists in men, you can use them and they seem to work as well as anti-muscarinics to reduce filling and storage symptoms. In neurologic dysfunction, actually recently, um, let's say in the last two months, I looked up a couple of articles that basically said that it was effective in neurologic dysfunction. No reason why it shouldn't be, it just hadn't been studied and published. And I'm sure the same will be true with the other beta-3 agonists. Alpha-1 antagonists for overactive bladder. Uh, basically, this comes from the International Continence uh, Consultation. The currently used ones considered effective for treatment of both storage and voiding symptoms, but not basically for uh, patients that only have storage symptoms. So storage and voiding symptoms, yes, just uh, voiding symptoms, no. And women, they've termed them ineffective. Alpha-1 blockers typically reduce the IPSS in both storage and voiding for patients with overactive bladder. The PDE5 inhibitors, again, you know, these are effective. Strong recommendation to use them in patients with moderate to severe LUTs, men in LUTs, with or without erectile dysfunction. There's no reason why the other PDE5 inhibitors shouldn't work the same as Tadalafil, which is the only one approved in the US uh, for that purpose. Estrogen, as Chris said, basically, uh, local estrogen seems to be effective for the postmenopausal uh, symptoms. Uh, topical estrogen, systemic estrogen actually seems to make um, incontinence worse. These are from the latest EAU guidelines. Vaginal estrogens may improve symptoms associated with GSM, and you should offer patients who have GSM vaginal estrogens. Available evidence suggests that vaginal treatment really doesn't, uh, or that systemic treatment really is not very good and may in fact worsen incontinence. So, you know, what I've learned, hey, behavioral modification is a great drug, always use it. Proper treatment is going to help. It's not going to cure anyone. The placebo effect is very powerful. When comparing results, you know, be careful to compare apples to apple and oranges to oranges. Chris will discuss combinations. Medians are different from means. Results are all over the board for efficacies, but I think drug placebo ratios help to level the playing field. And I think taking results from the original submissions to the FDA seems to be fair. For each type of drug, there seems to be a ceiling effect. As was mentioned, you raise the dose over a certain amount, all you get are more side effects. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. You're always a hard act to follow. Combination therapy. Again, disclosures. At the end of the day, what we've heard is a very elegant overview in the male and the female of the use of these different drugs. And of course, they all have different mechanisms of action pharmacologically. And some combinations are off-label. I'm just mentioning that. 
So bear this in mind, this is based on different parts of the world, not necessarily in the United States. At the end of the day, the rationale of any treatment is bearing in mind the natural history of the disorder is that things get inevitably worse. And what you're trying to do with drug therapy or any treatment is to reverse that process. At the end of the day, though, you have the side effects which act against that. Now, as we heard from the last presentation, it's so important to use behavioral therapy and drugs, and that goes without saying. Because remember, the thing that happens in every drug study is it's probably the first time those patients have been using a bladder diary. And many years ago, with Senda Hershorn, we reanalyzed one of the, the antimuscarinic studies, and we demonstrated that in the placebo group of that study, the patients were reducing their fluid intake, and in the active treatment group, they were increasing their fluid intake. So the bladder diary is bladder training. If you don't use that, you're missing the point in terms of treatment. It's not just reach for the prescription pad, look at the global patient. So combination therapy is to address this, and of course we have the guidelines, and you can see very clearly that all the guidelines agree that there's a role for this. But again, you've got to think carefully. So beta-3 and anti-muscarinic, different mechanisms of action, and what you're trying to do is to optimize the benefit for the patient, in this case, by using less of an anti-muscarinic. There have been a number of studies in terms of drug development program. I'll focus on two of them, the Symphony study, which was a dose-finding study, which looked at two doses of solifenicin, 2.5 and 5, and then 10, three doses, forgive me, and comparing solifenicin against combination of mirabegron 25 and 50. And they really came up with the, the conclusion that 5 milligrams of the anti-muscarinic was probably the target. So the Beside uh, study, which was to then look in more detail at this, and they looked, you can see it, dose escalation of mirabegron because of the U.S. regulations of 25 and 50, which don't exist in our countries because we just go straight to 50. But that was because of the hypertension risk, I think it's fair to say, which I think is a misnomer. But anyway, that's regulatory. And then it was solifenicin 5 and 10. And certainly what this demonstrated, that there was benefit for the combination. And you can see that showing there the yellow against the others across the board. And certainly the evidence was that you can minimize side effects, increase efficacy by the combination. And I routinely use that in my clinical practice now. Um, and certainly it seems to be effective in many patients. But as we've heard, the longevity of treatment is limited in patients. Again, there's been concern about pulse rate and blood pressure, and there's no signal using the combination, which is thought to be significant. So combination therapy with a beta-3 and an anti-muscarinic, and there's no reason that Vibegron won't fit into the same category, certainly seems effective. And certainly you're seeing a significant benefit in, across the board in terms of many of the different endpoints which we're familiar with. Now, as a backdrop to this, we've already heard the evidence for alpha blockers. And, and certainly we do know the VA study, for instance, and certainly there's efficacy. But again, in that study, a sign of the times, the emphasis was on retention, wasn't it? But if you look at the data after five years, it was only about 5% uh, <coughs> risk of retention. Indeed, if you look at men with an IPSS of over 25, the retention rate's about half a percent per year. Really, the focus should be on uh, 
what you're doing in terms of storage and voiding symptoms. And if you look at the combat study, and I'm just putting this slide up to emphasize one point on the far left, which is that if you add two drugs, an alpha blocker such as tamsulosin, and in this case dutasteride, you increase the sexual side effects. So you've got to bear that in mind. It's a balance with all therapy and counseling the patient. Alpha block and anti-muscarinic, and sorry, on the formatting it's come out on the far right, it should say anticholinergic in that blue box, but again the combination. And we've already heard that an alpha blocker does improve matters, and an anti-muscarinic will gain. People were very worried about 10 years ago about an anti-muscarinic causing retention in men, but a number of studies showed, for instance, this is just one of them, solifenacin increasing doses caused efficacy. But remember what I said about voiding efficiency. These trials avoided men with a residual of more than 150 mils to try and reduce the risk of voiding dysfunction. Really across the board, therefore, an alpha block and an anti-muscarinic from the ICUD, and this has been shown by repeated ICUD meetings, is effective, and the combination therapy, which this is a combination therapy available in Europe, but I don't think in the United States, which is based on the Neptune 1 and 2 studies, looked at tamsulosin, tamsulosin, and solifenacin at 6 and 9 milligrams, and really concluded that there was benefit at the 6 milligram dose, lessening the side effect profile, which led on to the Neptune 2 study, which was looking at solifenacin and, toc and tocas at 6 and 9 milligrams. And you can see that certainly you were getting a good benefit with in this study, solifenacin and tocas, which is a delayed release formulation of tamsulosin uh, versus the alpha blocker alone. So a benefit which is additional. Uh, and certainly, again, if you're looking at uh, storage symptoms here, you can see that there was a benefit using that in terms of quality of life and storage symptoms. Alpha blocker and beta-3, again, limited data. You heard that the EAU guidelines, particularly talking about incontinence, so on the female guidelines didn't mention men, but it is difficult to, to evaluate men from many of the OAB studies because it's a limited subset of the population that are male. It's usually women who are studied. But this is to redress the balance. This is looking at uh, adding mirabegron to tamsulosin, a Japanese study, the MATCH study, and this is, a, this is the profile of the study, 0.2 milligrams. Remember, in Japan, they use half the dose of tamsulosin uh, that we do. They do use the same dose of mirabegron, 50 milligrams, so they don't have dose titration. So it's not very uniform, this, the, the regulatory groups. You can see micturition, there's certainly a significantly greater reduction in micturition frequency in terms of IPSS as well and side effect profile well tolerated. There's also a study from the US from Steve Kaplan, and this is the PLUS study, which looked at the similar uh, program, but you could gain the dose titration with Mirabegron, and you can see that again, you got a greater benefit. So, um, beta-3, no, not rocket science, added to an alpha blocker, will improve storage symptoms. And you can see across the board, apart from the bottom right, where this is just a, a foible of the uh, way you investigate these things. And the side effect profile was very reasonable. So this demonstrated, again, presumptive evidence in the United States that there may be benefit from doing this. PD-5 inhibitors, we've already heard, are effective treatments. And you can see a review of the literature demonstrating that. And you can see, compared to tamsulosin in the European study, better than that in terms of the storage symptoms. 
and a meta-analysis confirms that. So what about an alpha block and a PD5 inhibitor? The evidence is certainly that there is benefit, particularly in improving erectile dysfunction. 5-alpha reductase inhibitors and a PD5, again, uh, the trouble with the 5-alpha reductase is the impact on erectile or function because of the effect on ejaculation and so on, and the effect on the patient's feeling of well-being. So PD-5 inhibitor certainly does, as you can see on the far right, improve the erectile function in these patients, as well as improving storage symptoms, as you can see on the left. Beta-3 and PD-5, there's a very small study suggesting some benefit from this, you can see there. So the bottom line is, you can mix and match. Medicine, like everything else, is trying to improve patients' quality of life. As physicians, we're using what we know from the literature, what we know in terms of the assessment of patients, using all the modalities, whether they're bladder diaries, assessment scores, discussion with the patient, to actually improve the efficacy. And whatever combination you use may not be regulated for, and I'm not suggesting you should break the regulatory guidelines, but in clinical practice, we do what we think is best for patients. At the end of the day, you need to use what we know and you need to think of a targeted approach for the patient, whether the male or female, bearing in mind as I started out in the second presentation, mentioning be aware of all of the other factors going on in the patient. We're not just, the great thing about urology is we deal with medicine and surgery across the whole of the field of uh, bladder dysfunction and therefore it allows us to interpret all the other conditions as well. Thank you very much. All right, we're going to move on. I, I must say that uh, we, we've done this course I don't know how many years in a row, and every time I, I, I come here, I learn more things than I thought that I was going to learn. So it's really a pleasure doing this course with these two giants in the, in the field. We're going to switch gears uh, to Nocturia. Again, not a... Uh, not overactive bladder, but often associated with overactive bladder and very important to consider uh, in your patients uh, with uh, lower urinary tract symptoms. Certainly nocturia is a component of overactive bladder, but can, as I will uh, elucidate shortly, uh, in, uh, exist in independent form. So you saw this slide earlier. Uh, this is the Epilet study. This was sponsored by Pfizer many, many, many years ago and basically quantified lower urinary tract symptoms in men and women. Uh, and what you can see is that nocturia is actually the most prevalent symptom uh, of all the lower urinary tract symptoms in both men and women, uh, nocturia being right in the middle, the, 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 the highest bar graph. But actually bothersomeness with nocturia starts with uh, a episode two or more Nocturia episodes is when patients tend to get bothered. Nocturia is defined by the ICS as the complaint of waking one or more times uh, to void. That means it has to be preceded by sleep and followed by sleep. So if you wake up five times during the 11 o'clock news, uh, but then sleep through the night until you wake up first thing in the morning, you have nocturia times zero. Um, broadly speaking, nocturia falls into three broad categories. Uh, and then there's primary sleep disorders, which I'm not going to talk about. I'm not a sleep doctor. Uh, you can have polyuria, uh, defined as greater than 2,800 cc's per 24 hours. Bladder storage problems. We love those as urologists. Um, uh, overactive bladder and, 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 and outlet problems that cause overactive bladder. And then nocturnal polyuria, which will really be the uh, topic to to, uh, of, of this 10-minute uh, uh, talk. Um, Bladder storage problems we're familiar with, OAB, BPH, neurogenic bladder, 
polyuria uh, can, be, uh, can come from uh, polydipsy, you drink too much, uh, diabetes, and then finally nocturnal polyuria, uh, which has a variety of different causes, including hormonal, behavioral, and medical causes. It's clear that nocturnal polyuria, making too much urine at night, is present in the majority of patients with nocturia. That is a component of their nocturia. And if we're not addressing the nocturnal polyuria component of their nocturia, they will not be well treated. They'll not be uh, treated appropriately. So you need to remember nocturnal polyuria is present in the majority of all nocturia patients, whether they live in Europe, the Asia, or the United States. So how do you assess nocturia? How do you make a diagnosis of nocturnal polyuria? Since again, it's gonna be present in the majority of patients. And that's with a voiding diary. That's the voiding diary that I use at my institution, but a good voiding diary records the volume and time of each voided event, records the, number, the time that the patient goes to bed and wakes up so you know exactly what uh, component of their 24-hour urine output occurs at night and that is inclusive of the first void of the morning because the first void of the morning includes the urine output overnight. And then the nocturnal urine volume again uh, does not include the last void before bed but does include the first void in the morning. Uh, and then you can calculate a nocturnal polyuria index, an NPI, uh, which is the nocturnal urine volume over the 24-hour urine volume. And roughly in adults, if it's more than a third, uh, then the patient makes the definition of nocturnal polyuria. So 33% or more of your total 24-hour urine, if it occurs at night, uh, based on a diary, you make the definition of nocturnal polyuria. So this is a diary of a patient clearly with uh, overactive bladder, frequent small voids day and night, uh, two and three ounce voids no matter what. Uh, this is a patient with polydipsia and although they wake up a couple of times at night, they simply drink too much. That is something you can only diagnose on a diary. Patients uh, uh, do not accurately reflect in a verbal uh, interaction how much they drink and that's been shown in multiple studies. It's very difficult to get an accurate measurement of how much somebody drinks until they actually write it down. Nocturnal polyuria, this patient actually has nocturnal polyuria. If you look at their nocturnal voids from the time they go to bed uh, to the time they wake up and add that up versus the amount of voids they have during the day, which is only three in small volumes, this patient clearly has nocturnal polyuria. And they, although they may come to tell you that they are seeing you for overactive bladder, uh, apropos to my first talk, the only way to uh, actually help this patient is to diagnose their nocturnal polyuria and address it. This is a patient with both nocturnal polyuria and overactive bladder. Uh, they're making, let's see, 1,000 plus 300, so uh, about 1,300 cc's. And then during the day, uh, they have lots of small voids. So this patient is a complicated patient with both OAB and nocturnal polyuria, and we're gonna treat him a little bit or her a little bit different. Where does nocturnal polyuria come from? Well, behavioral causes include, uh, excuse me, uh, patients who uh, take diuretics late at night, patients who drink a six-pack of beer before they go to bed, uh, patients who have excessive alcohol and caffeine before they go to bed, uh, eating a bag of potato chips before they go to bed uh, will also lead to nocturnal polyuria. Those are behavioral causes, lots of medical causes, uh, including uh, congestive heart failure, renal disease, uh, lower extremity edema, and then, of course, sleep disorders, uh, 
uh, including obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, that's a diagnosis made by a sleep center. Uh, but the key there is that uh, with obstructive sleep apnea, there's an excessive release of atrial natriuretic peptide, which leads to excessive uh, uh, urine output overnight. Uh, again, a diagnosis made in a sleep center. And then finally, the, the topic that I really want to delve into, which is uh, hormonal causes of nocturnal polyuria, which, as I just mentioned, one cause is uh, atrial natriuretic peptide found uh, in excess in patients with chronic obstructive uh, pulmonary diseases uh, and a variety of other heart diseases. Uh, and then finally, uh, the uh, one for, the, uh, for this talk, which is uh, arginine vasopressin. Uh, and basically, uh, patients with nocturnal polyuria uh, have a diminished uh, either response to or production of arginine vasopressin, which is a naturally occurring hormone release from the posterior pituitary. The key is that this generally decreases with aging. So decreased release of arginine vasopressin with aging leads to increased urine output in, as we age. What are the treatment for nocturnal polyuria? Behavioral causes include all the things that you would think. Uh, if they drink too much, restrict their fluid at night, restrict alcohol at night. Uh, afternoon lap, naps and elevation of legs to get the fluid out of their uh, out of their legs before they go to bed, uh, and then compressive hose, TEDS hose, if you will, uh, during the evening and uh, to squeeze the fluid out, and then time diuretics in those patients, uh, uh, time diuretics meaning time diuretics in the late morning, early afternoon, uh, so that they get their excess fluid out uh, uh, prior to retiring. Medical illnesses, congestive heart failure, COPD, which we talked about earlier, uh, those get a referral to the medical doctors or a sleep study. And then finally, a treatment of nocturnal polyuria vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, patients with diminished levels of AVP. So there is, uh, AVP is a uh, endogenous uh, 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 hormone released from the posterior pituitary. Uh, it, it acts at V1 receptors and V2 receptors. V1 receptors are a, uh, a, a pressor effect, that is increasing blood pressure, increasing uh, uh, blood pressure overall, uh, as well as effects on the uterus. And then the V2 receptors, uh, which are located in the kidney, are where we care about. We care about its effects at the V2 receptor. Uh, the uh, AVP basically causes a fusion of this uh, molecule called an aquaporin-2 uh, with the cell membrane in the distal collecting tubule, which causes increased free water reabsorption, so release of AVP. Fusion of aquaporins uh, in the distal tubule leads to increased fluid reabsorption in the kidney and less urine output. That is a normal physiologic response. This is probably the best cartoon I've ever seen. I don't understand the kidney. Maybe some of you do, uh, but I don't really understand the kidney. This is a diagram uh, of uh, the glomerulus, the descending tubule, the ascending tubule, and the collecting duct. And basically, under the lack of influence of, of AVP, you make a dilute urine. Uh, however, uh, when you give AVP, uh, the fusion of the aquaporin molecules in the distal collecting tubule cause fluid reabsorption, free water reabsorption into the interstitium of the kidney, resulting in a concentrated uh, decreased urine output. So that's how AVP works. Um, clinically, we can't give AVP uh, because it doesn't last very long. It just lasts a few seconds in the plasma. Uh, DDAVP uh, is a synthetic analog of AVP, which lasts longer in the serum. 
uh, and can be given in an oral and nasal form. Uh, in addition, a DDAVP uh, is a V2 receptor agonist with very few effects at the V1 receptor, so you don't get pressor effects or effects on the uterus uh, with DDAVP as opposed to endogenous AVP. Uh, what does it do? Uh, it causes free water absorption uh, in, the, in the renal interstitium, resulting in an increased urine osmolality and a decreased urine volume. It has been reviewed by the ICI, as Alan showed earlier. Uh, it gets a grade A recommendation from the ICI. That's the highest recommendation. The onset of DDAVP, whatever formulation you use, should it be a sublingual uh, melt or a nasal spray or a pill, is generally within 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, the dosing seems to be lower in females to have the same equivalent effect. You do not need to give the same dose in females, and that seems to be uh, related to a genetic effect uh, related to an X-linked difference in females as opposed to males. The AEs, the important AE with DDAVP is hyponatremia. The risk of hyponatremia is tied to age, low baseline sodium, uh, and uh, excessive fluid intake in the evening. And it's important to note that the hyponatremia, even if it doesn't come with the first few doses, can occur weeks and months later. If you think about fluctuations in what patients eat and drink on a daily basis, uh, if they change their diet going forward, or they change their fluid intake at night, or they change their salt intake at night, can all affect uh, their risk of hyponatremia. So you have to follow their sodiums uh, long term. How well does DDAVP work? Uh, roughly, uh, in this systemic uh, analysis, systematic analysis, uh, it reduces voids about 0.2 per night. Uh, the key actually with DDAVP and, and why patients get benefit is not necessarily because it's reducing their fluid uh, output at night or even reducing their episodes of nocturia. What it is doing is improving their sleep. And they're, it's improving their sleep by increasing the time to the first waking episode. By increasing that time, patients have better quality sleep. You get into deeper REM sleep by increasing that first time to waking up. So that seems to be where these drugs really improve quality of life. It's not the number of voids, it's that first wake up where you get the improved sleep. What's the incidence of hyponatremia? Seems to be about 7.6%. This is from a, uh, an analysis by Alan uh, Ween uh, sitting next to me. And again, risk factors are low sodium at baseline, uh, age, and, uh, gender, uh, and uh, sex, women. Uh, and again, monitoring of sodium should occur uh, three to four days after starting at a month and then about every six months. And again, it can happen at any time you can get hyponatremia. There are a variety of different formulations of DDAVP. Uh, there are oral tablets, nasal sprays. There are a couple of new formulations, one of which was on the market, then came off the market, and I've heard at this meeting it's coming back on the market, uh, which is a, a nasal spray with a different incipient, which improved the bioavailability and the safety profile. And then finally, an oral disintegrating tablet, um, uh, also approved a couple of years ago, uh, which allows lower dosing, uh, in, especially in females. There's a, 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 a sex-based dose uh, for that. Um, how well do these drugs work? This is the data for the uh, relatively new form of the nasal uh, formulation, uh, which you can see is uh, placebo, low dose, high dose. Not particularly impressive, uh, but statistically significant. Uh, but here's, here's the winner. I want you to look at this. 
Uh, this is the change in time uh, at bed to the first nocturnic episode. This is placebo, but you're getting almost twice the response uh, uh, to uh, the length of time, I should say, uh, by, by the drug at the high dose. So that's, that's I think, and I, don't, I can't prove this, but I think that's where the quality of life uh, with these drugs probably winds up uh, occurring most due to this effect in increasing the time uh, to that first waking episode. Uh, this is looking at the increase in, in or I should say decrease in, in urine production at night, uh, dose-response relationship, uh, and this is the incidence of hyponatremia, very quite low uh, uh, of incidence of hyponatremia, again, with the uh, newer formulation. What about combination therapy? Chris talked combination therapy a brief moment ago. I just I want to point out again how important nocturnal polyuria is uh, in, in your treatment of these patients. Um, this is a study we did a number of years ago. It's not great science, but it does highlight one point that I want to share with you. Um, a small number of patients, uh, women with both nocturia, more than two episodes, and a diagnosis of OAB were randomized to tolteridine or tolteridine plus uh, DDAVP. It uh, doesn't matter what formulation. It was a 12-week trial. The, the important point here is here's the, uh, the, the uh, initial uh, uh, endpoint uh, at 12 weeks, not particularly uh, the full analysis set and for protocol, uh, but, but patients who were on combination therapy did better than patients on monotherapy. Not really the take-home point. Um, here's the take-home point. The take-home point is if you, if you split out the patients with nocturnal polyuria and looked at their effect or lack of effect, um, and you looked at the patients without nocturnal polyuria, which is over here, the combination therapy didn't make any difference. But if you look at just the patients with uh, nocturnal polyuria, what a great drug effect. So again, if you have patients with nocturnal polyuria and OAB, you can give them combination therapy and it works reasonably well. Again, not high science, but, but reasonable. Nocturnal uh, conclusions for nocturia, uh, very common, the most common lower urinary tract symptom. Uh, there are three causes, behavioral, bladder storage problems, and hormonal problems. Uh, you can't diagnose this without a diary. Uh, treatment is based on the underlying cause. There's some new formulations of DDAVP, and again, combination therapy uh, may be useful for those with combined etiologies. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to Alan, who's going to talk uh, really about some really interesting things uh, that are going on, and maybe some not so interesting things that are going on in the future. Thank you, Alan. Okay, so strap yourselves in, the best part's at the end. Um, potential conflict of interest. Um, new approaches to the pharmacologic management of OAB. Chris talked about combining drugs. Uh, you can combine drugs with other forms of treatment, no reason you can't combine drugs with posterior tibial stimulation, sacral neuromodulation, or botulinum toxin, because none of these by themselves work perfectly. There are new variants of currently accepted principles, new anti-muscarinics, new beta-3 agonists, Vibegron, and new PDE5 inhibitors, and new targets. So this is a compendium of possible new targets. Um, and virtually all of these have been tried, and none of them have achieved great success. As Chris said, they've all started with mostly furry little animals, and those are not, strictly speaking, comparable, um, you know, to, to big furry animals. Um, but I will run through a lot of these. If you were a drug manufacturer, what would be your strategies? 
either decrease activation on the motor or sensory side of the micturition cycle. And that's really pretty much what you would do out of all these uh, four. Increased compliance is really a part of number one. And you would say, well, gee, I guess I can do this at any part of the nervous system down to the detrusor smooth muscle or even in more than one part of the nervous system and the muscular system. Yep, so I could do that. And what's the main problem? Always uroselectivity. What about the anti-muscarinics? Everyone thought in 2016, boy, that's it, game's over, but not so. So are there other possibilities? Well, not really. I can't find terafenicin anymore. Uh, there was an interesting, there is an interesting project that combines tolteridine with pilocarpine, which increases actually cholinergic activity. That's to reduce the dry mouth. Um, phase three began in 2015, so you can probably tell that someone forgot about it. Uh, Afacifenacin, I can't find that either anymore. And in the upcoming seventh edition of the incontinence book, which was supposed to be out last year, the committee report mentions no anti-muscarinics for overactive bladder in development. What about overseas drugs that are not yet brought to the U.S.? Well, propivirine, I've always been surprised that no one decided to bring this to the U.S. It, it's kind of like oxybutynin in that it's a non-selective anti-muscarinic and in the laboratory at least a calcium antagonist. And it's cited as equivalent to oxybutynin. These are some numbers from Martin Michel. Um, so whether this drug will get brought to the United States or not is still under consideration. Here's another one, uh, mostly mined in, in Japan, amatofenicin, um, an anti-muscarinic, primarily an M3, M1 blocker greater than M2. Um, again, in the animal, more affinity for uh, the bladder than in the salivary gland and colon, very similar to the initial pitch for tolteridine in that regard, and one study by Dr. Homa uh, a long time ago, 14 years ago, still in use in Japan, not sure why it hasn't been brought to the U.S. Are there any new beta-3 agonists? Salabegron, again, awaiting phase three studies. I've had that slide now for about six years. Um, Rhidobegron, interesting story, selective in vitro for bladder versus atrial and tracheal tissue. Um, the primary phase three efficacy endpoint was not met. So let me just show you about what the obstacles are to bringing new products to market. You, first of all, you have to have a pharmacologic rationale. Then you do animal in vitro studies, mostly little furry animals, like Chris said. Maybe if you have a wealthy enough lab pigs, then the animal in vivo experiments. Then you have to do toxicology experiments, either on big, huge furry animals um, or something else. Then you go through phase one, phase two, and phase three. So the success of drugs going on to clinical trials overall in this 15-year period, 6.3% got through phase one. Of those, 31% got through phase two. Of those, 58% got through phase three. So not very good. So you have to be pretty sure something's going to work. Here's another study that looked at clinical trial success rate for oncology versus other drugs. So we're a little better than oncology, but still. 20.9 phase one, 
27.3 of those that went on to phase two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So ritabegron is kind of a good example. It worked great in little furry animals. Phase one, it increased volumes at the first bladder contraction. The phase two or three results were never published, just a statement that it seems that the primary efficacy endpoint was not met. Beta three agonists. There are a number in the pipeline. These are all the numbers. Um, at least in studying the beta-3s, it's been found that in addition to acting directly on the smooth muscle and on the afferent system, they also decrease the amount of acetylcholine uh, pre-junctionally that's released. Um, is there a ceiling effect to the beta-3 agonists like with the anti-muscarinics? I, I, I think so. And what's going to make another beta-3 agonist superior to the ones already on the market? I mean, they're pretty good. So I'm not sure what that's going to be. Potassium channel openers, when given systemically, again, disappointing clinical results because of a lack of uroselectivity. Um, there's a perfect rationale, you know, in terms of what it does to the cells. It opens the big potassium channels, which causes smooth muscle relaxation. Calcium channel voltage-operated antagonists, you know, the same problem. It's uh, a lack of uroselectivity. Uh, they're great in vitro. You can inhibit any bladder contraction uh, with a calcium antagonist, and you can impair bladder contractility in mice, et cetera, but unfortunately hasn't worked very well. Prostanoid receptor antagonists, promising anim animal models. Again, minimal clinical results with a high incidence of side effects. Um, as Chris mentioned, some people have tried to use the opposite uh, as a construct for treating detrusor underactivity, and I gather after a long haul, you know, that didn't work out either. New positive, well, duloxetine is not new, and as Chris mentioned, it did give surprisingly positive results in women with overactive bladder, but there are too many adverse events, so it was never approved in the U.S. for either stress incontinence or overactive bladder. These were the side effects that were seen. Um, Nausea, insomnia, discontinuations due to adverse events, et cetera. Are there other serotonin, norepinephrine uh, reuptake inhibitors that may be brought to market or may be tried, uh, possibly? Um, unfortunately, duloxetine is not one of them. Vitamin D agonists, uh, great rationale, you know, in the laboratory, minimally positive effects. Neurokinin receptor antagonists, great idea. So here's one story about the neurokinin-1 receptor antagonists. What do they do? Well, the antagonists possess antidepressant, antiemetic, and anxiolytic properties. They block capsaicin-induced detrusor overactivity and dopamine receptor-stimulated detrusor overactivity by an action at the spinal cord level, not at the muscle. There was one drug that is used for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting that improved overactive bladder symptoms in a group of postmenopausal women with primarily urgency urinary incontinence. Uh, Tara Frankel uh, with Merck found that this drug was not suitable because of drug-drug interactions. The arepitant used another drug similar, Sirlepitrant, and compared it to tolteridine, found that it was no better. In fact, tolteridine was actually better. I always wondered why they didn't try combining this with an anti-muscarinic. Uh, they didn't, uh, but you know that's another story. So that's pretty much gone. 
Gamma aminobutyric acid is the chief inhibitory compound in the central nervous system. So you would expect, expect, hey, that's a great idea. And on little furry animals, there were promising effects. And the last study was further studies would be of interest. That's um, sort of a death knell. Purinergic receptor antagonists, as Chris mentioned, with bladder distension, ATP is released from the urethelium and P2 X3 receptors are expressed on bladder afferent terminals and modulate sensation centrally for regulating bladder activities. If you knock this out in little furry animals, you'll get increased intercontraction intervals and a reduced peak pressure response in re response to filling. Um, in the normal bladder, uh, ATP contributes to contraction and in disease states, in humans, it's thought to contribute up to 50% of contractions. So this would seem to be a reasonable target. And this is what happens in an experimental animal. This slide is from Carl Eric Anderson. You can see the circle there. It actually increases the time to the first in contractions. It doesn't seem to affect the amplitude of contractions. So it decreases the frequency of contractions. And you would think, wow, you know, that's really going to do well. It hasn't done well in clinical trials. The cannabinoids, everybody says, boy, I hope this works because I'm going to go out and buy some. Um, well, there is some theoretical rationale, you know, why the cannabinoids might work. They do affect afferent signaling and cholinergic nerve activities. Um, and there is some studies, especially in multiple sclerosis, that oral modulators may alleviate overactive bladder symptoms no one knows exactly where they work, um, and you can file it as a concept that's still basically in development. Um, this is basically one compilation of studies, a reduction of 0.35 urgency incontinence episodes per day. Now, admittedly, all the baselines were low, but this was the conclusion uh, from this meta-analysis the evidence base is poor, blah, blah, blah. And again, you know, that basically means, hey, we want to be nice to these people, but it doesn't look like it works. Promising animal data. Chris mentioned the transient receptor potential antagonists. Um, they, these receptors basically are expressed in the bladder and urethra, and they act as sensors to stretch and chemical irritation. Another slide from Carl Eric Anderson showing that pretty much whatever parameter you use, voided volume is the blue. Um, in the red, intercontraction interval, um, if you use TRPV1 antagonists, that you will get a good result. Um, hyperthermia proved to be a problem experimentally. The TRP, TRPM8 antagonists, the trials were called a successful failure. Um, there's one, the pH and the last bullet point that produced perioral burning sensation, so that was a non-starter. This was Francisco Cruz's conclusion in a little uh, piece about the TERP receptors. Uh, basically, yep, they need an enormous amount of work, uh, and that may take more time than we anticipate. Opioid receptors, uh, there's a mu receptor agonist that may moderate micturition. Uh, tramadol initially, which is in that category, reported positive results, but that was later retracted from the British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology because of statistical problems. Here's another one, and you can see that, hey, in the lab, this seems to work great. Um, 
So is this going to prove successful in humans? No one really knows. If you had an agent that decreased fibrosis, so you could prevent problems with compliance in patients with bladder outlet obstruction or neurogenic bladder with detrusor sphincter dyssynergy, boy, wouldn't that be a great thing. And there are some things that are being tried. Um, at the moment, you can say that this is a great idea, but so far it hasn't been brought to reality. These are all other ideas, um, none of which have been brought to fruition. But they're reasonable ideas, and it's exciting to watch the literature, to watch the development from pharmacologic rationale to trials in little animals, to trials in alive or little animal tissue, to trials in little animals that are alive, and then see what happens kind of after that. This was the cover shot of neurourology and urodynamics with a particular kind of drug, what I called a new old idea. The idea is that there are large conductance voltage and calcium activated channels called the big potassium channels that are highly expressed on bladder smooth muscle cells. So you can modulate this channel with gene therapy by administering a gene therapy plasmoid vector expressing the human VK channel alpha subunit. And this was tried initially by just putting it intravesically and injecting it basically into the detrusor smooth muscle. Um, a lot of this work was done at the Medical University of South Carolina. You see Eric's name and Petka's name who was there for a while. Um, this was the phase one trial, basically looking at intravesical and direct injections. And, you know, it's a clever idea. The results were, uh, and the phase two study, I've been given permission by Yervant and Ken Peters to present just a flash of the data where it was just injected into the detrusor. 12-week uh, results, uh, the intention to treat exposed patients. So this was the baseline for urgency episodes. At 12 weeks, as you can see, a significant effect. You know, this was the difference. And look at the drug placebo ratio. Wow, higher than anything that I've shown you, right? because there's nothing that was over two, even remotely approached to. So obviously, you know, the phase three trials need to be done. And remember, you know, the experience with, uh, you know, uh, Kegel's exercise in a bottle where phase two results, boy, they were great. And then after that, the phase three fails. I hope this phase three works. Uh, this was urgent to urinary incontinence episodes. Again, a pretty high drug placebo ratio. So just a summary, yep, all these are possible. All these are possible. So there's no new clinically successful breakthroughs approved by the FDA. Hopefully there will be, thanks so much. We, uh, we have time for a couple of questions. Are there any questions? Yeah. Go ahead. Hi, thank you very much. Um, one of the issues that uh, I think uh, I'm seeing, especially in the post-COVID world, is that a number of patients are looking for on-demand therapies. These are people who uh, no longer care about the day-to-day -day at their office. They may be working from home now, but they want uh, some quick on-demand treatments. Can we comment on the pharmacokinetics of the anticholinergics and also on the beta-3 agonists 
and whether on-demand use has any role. I do have one fun anecdotal story around this. I have a patient who, uh, her boyfriend is a hockey player. She never really leaves the house, except when she goes to hockey games. Every time she goes, she takes two pills of Ditropan, crushes them up, and put it in her beer right before she starts. And she says that works for her. This is something she came up with. I didn't tell her to do this. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm curious along those principles. I mean, is there potential use of these drugs for very rapid on-demand effect? And in theory, would something like crushing it up uh, uh, actually enhance the pharmacokinetics? Comment? Yes, I mean, oxybutynin for years on the immediate release formulation has been used in that context. The problem, of course, like any pharmacologically active agent, if you get a spike, you also get a spike of side effects. But uh, she would be able to pen severe, cope with the dry mouth and so on, for a finite period of time. Right. But again, that's the problem. If you're getting this peak trough, peak trough, and that's why they've gone towards the extended release formulations to try and minimize the side effect profile. Specifically, so wh what's the time interval? Do we know? I don't think, I, I can't answer that today. Uh, I mean, the, the point is that if you're using something like immediate release oxybutynin, it'll give you three to four hours of benefit. But again, it's that side effect issue. But, you know, if you don't mind a dry mouth for that period of time, it's, it's fine. It's just long-term efficacy and, you know, the appropriateness. I mean, she's just taking when she leaves the house. Um, that's, a, that's a balance, isn't it? And that's what nobody's been able to overcome. But yeah, If you look at the EAU guidelines this year, the 22 guidelines, you know, they basically say that if you use desmopressin, that that's approved for short-term use in women. And I think as long as she doesn't drink a lot of beer at the hockey games, you know, because of overhydration and the danger of hyponatremia, that that would probably be a great solution. Sure. Very common. Just uh, anecdotally, uh, uh, sublingual Levson, the onset is a little more rapid. Um, it's absorbed and the onset concentration gets uh, high fast, so that may be a, uh, an, an alternative uh, for PRN use. I've, I've done it a few times, but not often. Thank you. Other questions, comments from anybody? Your experience with stuff? Well, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.